0: Good evening and greetings in the name of our Lord. It's a blessing to see so many here tonight. I just want to bless you as young people uh, for coming out tonight, and and I'll leave you to define who's young and who's not here tonight. If you are looking at the reality of eternity, everyone here is quite young. If you're a Christian, you're eternally young. Your body will age, but your spirit is going to be growing stronger and younger and younger and younger. Wonderful concept that our Lord has given to us. I look at young people today, and my heart is just warm. It's warm by your countenance. I don't know what all is happening in your hearts. And but I can see just looking over your, this congregation, that the young people here, as, as Paul has said, he said, "You know from a youth, you've learned the Holy Scriptures, and you know that they're able to make you wise unto salvation through the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I can see that you've had some training. And while we've all grown up in homes that have a measure of dysfunction in them, you must consider yourself very, very fortunate to have at least grown up where the gospel was shared, where the word of God was preached, and where you were exposed at an early age to the truth that is in Christ Jesus. Count yourself very, very, very blessed indeed. We look at the life of Timothy, a very difficult home life, where you have a father who is a Greek, a mother who has heard probably from a child, probably taken from her home as a young slave girl uh, and sold, perhaps, to Timothy's father. Some things in history would indicate that. A very difficult situation he grew up in. But he learned the word of God. He learned it from his mother and grandmother. and He was a blessed man, and Paul is reminding him how blessed he is and that he needs to set his heart to make sure that the truths that are in Christ Jesus actually make a difference in his life and empower him to live the gospel. And that's my greatest heart's desire is to tonight and sharing God's word that you young people would find power to live out the gospel of Jesus Christ. I meet young people all the time who tell me, You know, we've got a lot of struggle in our church. Or tell me, you know, I'd like to get married someday, but I sure don't want a marriage like mom and dad have. I want to encourage you tonight to understand that in the body of Christ, there will be, always be, struggle. In the context of marriage, there will always be struggle, but that never relieves you of your moral obligation to keep your eyes on Jesus and to follow him and to follow hard after him. So my thoughts tonight have to do with surrender. Because as I travel, have the opportunity to travel around through a number of churches, and I have the opportunity to speak to people who are struggling in their Christian lives and struggling to get a grasp on the gospel and to live it out in their lives, to make a practical way of life out of the truth that is in Christ, the one thing that keeps coming up time and time again is this whole issue of Surrender. And if I could t- if I could take one thing and instill it in the heart of most of the people that are struggling in their marriages and in their churches today, if I could take one thing and just insert it in there like a little microchip that would change everything, it would be to understand the power of surrender. So tonight we're going to talk about surrender what the Word of God says about surrender, because what I say doesn't matter, but what Jesus says matters a whole bunch. And what we want to do is talk a little bit about how that surrender and worship are inseparable. They are linked together. And Jesus said that, he, that the Father in heaven, he knows everything that's going on right now in the world, and he knows every thought that you think, and he knows everything that's happening in your heart. And he's looking for something out of you. He's looking for worship, but a certain kind of worship. And it's the kind of worship that Jesus describes as worship that is done in what? Can someone tell me? A little louder? Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. We got that? What does it mean to worship in spirit and in truth? I'm struggling just a little bit because I have a bunch of young men back here that just feels so far away from me. And I'm just going to ask, if you don't mind, there's four young men right there in that row. If you don't mind, just move up here a little bit. Uh, we, yeah, that would just feel so much better. That just feels, I can, I can see your faces so much better. I just really appreciate that. Thank you, young men. Thank you for being willing to do that. That, that was actually a demonstration of what it means to surrender to the will of someone else. You got that? Okay, I didn't do it for an illustration, but that is what life is about. It's about us submitting ourselves to the will of somebody else. I just want to thank you for your courage. I've asked young men to move up already like that, and they're like, really? You want me to do that? Sure. But let's let's open our Bibles tonight to Mark, and let's look at chapter 8 for a bit, and just look at what Jesus says, because what Jesus says is what is really important here. And I look, at, I look at you young sisters, I look at you young men, and I believe that if you get a hold of this concept, that you can actually be ministers, you can be vessels of honor that God can use to minister to some of the needs that we have in our churches today. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that you can have marriages that are different than what some people are experiencing today. But it really depends on you getting a hold of the truth that Jesus teaches and so we're going to just start reading here in, in uh, Mark. And we're going to start reading. I hardly know where to break in. Uh, there's so much here that we should read, and you can read on your own. Uh, but we're going to start reading in verse 32, I believe. So what Jesus has been teaching, to get the context here, what Jesus has been teaching is that the Son of Man is going to suffer, and he's going to suffer many things of the chief priests and the scribes, and he's going to be killed. And at the third day, he's going to rise. That's what Jesus has just said. And we're going to start reading in verse 32. And he spake that saying openly, and Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And when he had called the people unto him with with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever shall come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, the same shall save it. For what shall it profit a man if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Whosoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. We're all familiar with this passage of scripture. Probably so familiar with it that we don't meditate on it and pray it like we ought to. But what Jesus is teaching here is that it's really, really, really important for us to get our heart wrapped around the truth, that if you want to experience power with God, if you want to experience eternal quality of life here and now, you've got to understand this one thing, and this this is mentioned in the other Gospels, and it often has verily, verily, which means surely, surely, most assuredly, I say unto you, that if you want to experience life, here is how you experience life. And that is that you must die to yourself, and that is surrender, okay? Dying to yourself, your own desires, your own ambitions, dying to yourself and taking up your cross. What is the cross? And I think this is so critical that we understand that the cross that we bear, it's not the toothache that you have. It's not the the pain you have in your back. It's not the things that someone asks you to do that you don't want to do. That is not the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is your absolute commitment to follow Jesus regardless of the cost. That is the cross of Christ. Your absolute commitment to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and to demonstrate his character regardless of the circumstances that you find yourselves in or regardless of the things that other people may do to you. You will, regardless, be faithful to your commitment to die to self. That is the cross. And to bring forth the character of Jesus. And you cannot do that, Jesus is saying, unless you embrace the reality, the truth, of the need that we have to surrender. And this thing, you know, what, what has happened in Christianity today is that we have this concept that coming to the Lord and giving our heart to Jesus, when we hear the Spirit of God speak, call us to salvation, that coming to Jesus is our taking up the cross And are following Jesus. But Jesus says that's step one. Very important step. Extremely important step. Don't miss it. For your life, don't miss it. But that's step one. Every day. You make that choice over. That means you do it today, which is Friday. And you do it tomorrow, which is Saturday. And you're going to do it many times on Sunday and many times on Monday. This is a continual way of life. Dying to self. Taking up our cross Always, over and over recommitting to our commitment to follow Jesus regardless of the cost. And he says in verse 35, you want to save your life? You want to take that little space of time that will someday be on your tombstone between the date of your birth and the day of your death, that little hyphen that represents the whole of your life, whether it's 25 years or 30 years or 70 years, whatever it may be, it's all represented in that little space that will someday rest on your tombstone unless the Lord comes first. And you want to take that little space of life and you want to do something with it that will actually be for the glory of God, then here's where you start. With a a steadfast commitment to die to self daily and to take up my cross and to follow Jesus. I want to say to you young people that you will not believe, you will not believe, how short life is. You can't understand it at your age. You can't. But you give yourself another 25 years, another 30 years, and suddenly the end looks a lot closer. Sometimes it looks like it's just right before you. And I'm, I'm 56 years old, and I'm already saying, okay, if I live to be 70 years, what do I have left? What do I want to do? If if I have 14, 15, 16 years left in my life, whatever it is, what do I want to do in that time that matters for eternity? How can I redeem that time for eternity? We have this propensity to take that little slot of time and dream big. You know, we make our plans and we have the things we want to do. and We want to have a vision, but it has to be God's vision for how we're going to build his kingdom because we tend to take that time and we waste it on ourselves, chasing our own ambitions, chasing careers, chasing an education. And we need some of those things to help us to serve the Lord. But our focus must be on coming into this place of power with God. where we're not wasting our time. You cannot waste time without doing damage to eternity. God wants us to impact eternity with the time that he has given to us. And what he is saying to us is that The only way to do that is through an absolute commitment to surrender. What does it mean to surrender? Uh, Let me give you a definition, a working definition. To completely give up one's own will and subject your thoughts and ideas and deeds to the will and teachings of a higher power. Uh, And just in case you didn't get that, let me read it again just a bit slower. To a full surrender is this, completely giving up one's own will and subjecting our thoughts, ideas, deeds to the will and teachings of a higher power. And so that's uh, where this whole thing comes in of our surrender and our worship of God tying together and being inseparable. And I was trying to think how I can illustrate this. And it came to my mind, um, I was told by an old bishop in our church in Lancaster County just a few years before he died, He said this, he says, in the purity of worship lies the strength of the soul, the favor of God, and the secret of his will. And I'm going to probably share that with you a couple of times. I would encourage you to write it down. in the purity of worship lies the strength of the soul, the favor of God, and the secret of his will. And the point I want to make tonight is that according to the word of God, we cannot worship in spirit and in truth unless we are absolutely sold out and understand the call to surrender fully to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was in 1945. I wasn't there. I don't remember. I wasn't born yet. But if you read history, you, uh, you read about the surrender of the Japanese. They were the aggressors. They came against America during World War II, bombing Pearl Harbor. And I don't know how many lives were lost in the battles that uh, followed that bombing of Pearl Harbor. But in, by 1945, it became pretty clear to everybody, including the Japanese, that they were not going to win this war against the Allied forces. And they were, they called, the Allied forces called for uh, complete and total surrender. What does complete and total surrender mean? It means that I'm going to bow my will. I'm going to, I'm going to uh, give up my thoughts. I'm going to subject my thoughts, my, my deeds, my vision, everything to a higher power. That's what it means. And they could not see themselves doing that. So they said, look, okay, can the empire remain the emperor in our, in our country? That is very, very important. And they said, that's not for you to decide. That's what the Allied forces decide. Well, can you guarantee immunity from the soldiers and the, and the military men who waged this campaign? They said, that's not for you to worry about. We're winning. We'll decide that. You just surrender, unconditional surrender. That's not unconditional surrender. You're trying to, you're trying to determine what the limits of the surrender is going to look like. You can't do that. And so they said, what about the cabinet? I mean, can you guarantee that the cabinet, the war cabinet that we have here serving under the emperor will be immune from prosecution? They said, that's not unconditional surrender. Unconditional surrender is unconditional surrender. That's what it is. And they would not surrender. And so that we know what happened in early August when they took a a bomb and they devastated, I think it was Hiroshima first, on about August 6, with a a, a nuclear bomb, the first time ever in history that a nuclear bomb was used in warfare. And I don't remember the numbers, but I think it was somewhere around 80 to 130,000 people that died from that nuclear bomb, just devastating. And a couple days later, they asked him again, are you willing to surrender? And they said, no. They said they can't have more than one bomb like that. And then a couple days later, Nagasaki went up in a plume of smoke, thousands more killed. It's devastation, and then about the same time, here's what happened: is that the Russians said, "Hey, we want in on this too. We want to be a part. We see Japan's going down; their their power has been broken. We want part to of that too." And they start moving into some islands that had that were pretty much abandoned at that point by the by the Japanese military, and very easily overran those islands. And the Japanese were faced with this great reality that we have a power that is greater than ourselves that are telling us that they are going to breathe out complete and total destruction upon our lives. We have an enemy that's coming in and invading our territories and, and we're going to end up just completely ruined if we do not surrender to this power. And so I think it was something like August 15, I can't remember, but I think it was something like August 15 when their emperor, and I can't say his name right now, but he got up and he made a radio address, and he says, look, my dear country people, to avoid complete devastation, we are going to make a full, unconditional surrender to the Allied powers. And what happened? An amazing thing happened. President Harry Truman tapped on the shoulder of Douglas MacArthur and said, Um, Douglas MacArthur uh, I'm going to appoint you as the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces the Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces and I want you to go in there and I want you to uh, organize, orchestrate the whole thing to rebuild Japan and so Douglas MacArthur goes in there and they sign the unconditional surrender and that gives Douglas MacArthur absolute complete control of the entire country. And he goes in there, and instead of removing the empire, the emperor, he enables him. He takes the war cabinet out, he brings a cabinet in that has a complete different mindset. It's no longer about getting more from myself. It's about how can we live together peacefully? How can we prosper peacefully? How can we build each other up? And how can we have relationships with other countries and have trade agreements? And, you know, this this went on until I think it was in uh, 18, or 1989, something like that, when the, the emperor uh, passed on. But by that point, by 1889, some of you are old enough to remember that, the Japanese economy had become the second largest economy in the world under the United States of America. And I look at that whole thing, I say, you know, that is really interesting. Really, really interesting how that through surrender to a higher power in the face of total destruction, a country received such incredible blessing. You think about that. They they, they increased and grew economically. And I thought about the fact that we have Yahweh. And he says, your life is headed for absolute complete destruction you if you do not surrender your life to me and live a life of complete surrender where I am the Lord of your life you are destined for complete destruction and furthermore we have an enemy that is always a devil who is always trying to come against us with all his forces to destroy our lives but we have one Emmanuel who has been appointed by Yahweh To be the supreme commander of the almighty power of God. And he comes into our lives. He says, I got an offer for you. I got an offer for you. If you will come to me and with complete unconditional surrender, give me your life. And every day covenant to live in my power. I will enrich you from the storehouses of my grace. You will not be able to contain all the blessings that I have for you. That's what he says. Are we a fool if we turn away from a deal like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So that's what he holds forth to us. Galatians 2. 20, reveals that Apostle Paul understood this. He says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I I live, but yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live by the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. And he calls us to humble ourselves. Peter calls us to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt us in due time. You see, you get the picture? He says, look, Paul says, I'm no longer living my own life. I've been given a new heart. It's no longer about me, 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 I, I, I. It's now about Jesus. It's about his kingdom. It's about me being his servant. And I say, Yes, Lord, what is it that thou wilt have me to do? I exchange that for my natural tendency to want to serve myself and make my own decisions. And so to surrender to Christ means to totally and completely place my life, my heart, my mind, my future, my relationships, my occupation, my worries, everything into his hands over and over and over and over again. I um, want to ask you this question. What does it mean? What does it mean? How can we identify those areas in our lives that we need to keep giving over to God? What are those areas of our lives that we must keep giving over to God? And the answer is, very simply, ourselves. Just ourselves. I is the root of all sin. It began with Satan, the promotion of oneself. Satan said, um, I will be my own God, I will make my own decisions. I will manage my own life, I will decide what is right, I will decide what is wrong. You young people are growing up in a culture where everyone wants to make their own decisions about what is right, about what is wrong. I just recently read the survey and I jotted it down. This was done by the Barnard Research Group. 65% of professing Christians in America today that claim that they are committed to following Jesus. 23%, they did a survey, there's 65% that claim they're committed Christians. 23% of those do not think that fornication is immoral. 13% of those who claim to be Christians today in America do not believe that drunkenness is wrong. How did we get here? We got here through Everyone wanting to decide for themselves what is right and what is wrong. We got here through a self-focus that has invaded the body of Christ and wants to continually invade our own hearts and our own lives. And so my next thoughts are have to do with the fact that surrender and sacrifice and worship cannot be separated. Jesus says here, he says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer dreadfully. It's his sacrifice for us, that enables us to understand this in a fuller way. Peter resisted it. He says, no, you cannot do that. And Jesus says, there is no other way. If I'm going to be the sacrifice that's going to take away the sins of the world, there is no other way. If I'm going to be a sacrifice that is pleasing to God, then there's one thing I have to do, and that is to surrender my will and to lay down my life. We see sacrifice many times in Scripture. It starts in Genesis 4. If you go to Genesis 4, we're not going to go there tonight, but if you go there, you read the story of sacrifice being made first by Cain and then by Abel, and then God differentiates very clearly that Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable because he did not follow God's directions to with detail. Abel's was acceptable, and Abel's worship was acceptable before God because he sacrificed in a way that was pleasing to God. He sacrificed with an humble and a broken heart, like Brother Evan was talking about here this evening in the opening. And we cannot, we can offer our sacrifices, we can bring our sacrifices, we can bring our praise, we can bring our prayers, but if there's not a brokenness in our hearts, then our sacrifice is not acceptable to God. And the next place we read about sacrifices in Genesis 22, and it's a very moving story that we won't take time to go to and read, you're very familiar with Genesis chapter 22 and the story of Abraham and Isaac. And what do you think about when you think about Abraham taking his son up onto Mount Moriah and he looks at his three servants and he says this to them. He says, um, you stay here. I'm not sure if there's three servants there. It might've been three days journey, but they, he said to his servants, you stay here. The lad and I are gonna go over on that mountain over there and we're going to worship. Do you think Abraham struggled to yield to God's command in his life? I think only a father can begin to understand a little bit the depth of that struggle. And yet he obeyed. And his sacrifice to God was acceptable. Abraham was a friend of God because Abraham would hold nothing back from being obedient to the will of God. So the highest form of worship is to surrender our will to the will of another, we're all familiar with Romans chapter two, uh, 12, verses one and two. Paul says, "I beseech you," and if you if you look that up in the Greek, it's like uh, I get down on my knees in front of you and I beg you. I beseech you that you present yourselves, your bodies, your life, a living sacrifice. That's a that's a term that comes from temple worship. That we we come, we bring ourselves, you are bringing your life, your body, your spirit, your mind, your will, and you're bringing it to God and you're offering it to him as a living sacrifice. It's only a reasonable service, Paul says. In light of what Jesus has done for us, it is only our reasonable service. I want to invite you to come to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 32. I think we can know. I just want to encourage you young people. As a young man, I had a um, an elder bishop come up to me one day. I was 18 years old. I didn't necessarily grow up in the church. We attended various churches. And when I was 16, our family visited the church that I'm now a part of. It was intended just to be a, a drop-in for one Sunday. And uh, I've been there ever since. But I was 18 years old, and I was like renewed my my heart to the Lord and I, I my commitment to follow Jesus and I was like feeling pretty good about what God had done in my life and, and my spiritual growth. And one Sunday this elder bishop, 70 years old or so, met me as I was exiting the building and he took my shoulder in his one hand and my hand in his other hand and he said, John Uh, I just want to encourage you to go the whole way. And like, uh, I I am a Christian. I've yielded my life to Christ. He said, John, I, I just want to encourage you to go the whole way. And I didn't have the grace at that moment to say, John, what are you trying to say? What do you see in my life? Where do you see me manifesting pride, following my own instincts rather than living a life of yieldedness? I wish I would have had grace to do that. I look back on my life and I say, you know, there was a lot of things he was probably seeing. I'm sure he was seeing a lot of things in my life that was manifesting spiritual pride and just a lack of brokenness in my life. And I wish I had the grace to walk more humbly than I did as a young person. I believe that I could have had more power in influencing others to seek after God with their whole heart. So as I look at you young people tonight, I'm just saying, be open, be transparent with your lives. Sit down with your ministry, sit down with your parents and say, what, what am I missing in my life? What am I not seeing? Are there attitudes that are being manifested? Sometimes we just need to stop and listen to our speech, the words that we say. It, it's, it's so helpful to do that. I try to do that sometimes. Just the words that I say and the tone of voice in which I speak. How often do I use the word I? I did this, I did that, I'm gonna do this. Um, did you notice that I did such and such? It just, it's just, I, I. It can be so much a part. I grieve at looking back on my life, how I made life so much about me and not about Jesus. And I think we can know, God wants us to know how broken our lives are, how surrendered our wills are, how pure our worship is to him. We want our worship to be pure. I I think it was uh, F.P. Meyer. F.P. Meyer was a contemporary with um, D.L. Moody. And uh, F.P. Meyer wrote a lot. He preached, he wrote. And he had this um, thing in his life. I don't know what it was. He never says what it was. But there was something in his life that he had not fully surrendered the Lord. And he was preaching messages, and he was writing books, articles. And one of his disciples, Charles Studd, I don't know if you ever read any of his writings or not, but Charles Studd uh, was seeking the Lord. He was a younger man, but he was seeking the Lord with a passion. And F.B. Meyer watched him, and he just cried out to the Lord. He said, Lord, show me. Show me what it is in my life that I have not fully yielded to you. And then he had a dream or vision one night where the Lord walked up to him and said, uh, F.B., what, what's that there on your lap? And he looked down and there was a ring of keys laying on his lap. And he said, uh, that's the keys to my life. And he tossed them to the Lord Jesus. He said, I've given you my life. I've given you everything. And Jesus said, yeah, but what's that? And he looked down and lying on his leg was a little tiny key. Just a little tiny key. There was one area of his life that he didn't think anybody noticed. Just one besetting sin that he was still enjoying. And he didn't think anybody noticed. And Jesus said, But what about that key? And he said, You want that key? Jesus said, If you want to surrender your life to me and you want power with God, I need that key. And he tried to pick that key up in his vision, in his dream. He tried to pick that key up and give it to the Lord. And he could not. He could not. And he cried out and he said, Lord Jesus, I cannot, but I want you to take it. And he begged God to take that one last area of his life that he was not willing to fully surrender. And the Lord Jesus reached down and took that key off his lap, and he had a new freedom in his life. That little closet where he had allowed things that he thought would bring him pleasure that he couldn't do without, he asked God to clean it out, cleanse it, and to fill it with his grace. And from that day forward, they say F.B. Meyer had a new power in his life, a new strength, a new confidence, a new clearness in his prayers with God, a new ability when he looked at people, to see them with, as eternal, with eternal value and to care for their souls. We need that. We need to often examine our hearts and say, God, what is? is there anything in my life that I'm keeping back from you? I want you to have the smallest key to the smallest closet in my heart, and I want you to have full control of that, to cleanse me completely and fully. Where did I say we were going? I said we were going to Genesis 32, did I not? Let me find my place here. And this is another one of those uh, stories that, that helps us understand the uh, connection between worship and full surrender and how that we gain power with God only through a full surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know where to start here because we don't have time to read it all. I would encourage you to uh, do so On your own time, Uh, Genesis 32 is the story of Jacob, and I just want you to notice in the very first verse, Jacob has been fleeing. uh, He's been fleeing his father-in-law Laban, and if you know anything about Jacob, what does Jacob mean? Does anyone know what the name Jacob means? Thank you, brother. Deceiver, supplanter, deceiver. He's he's like he has lived his life trying to get his own way. Is that fair to say about Jacob? hoeing his own row through life. And it looks like he's doing pretty well. He's got a big flock. He's got herds. He's got two wives. He's got sons. He's got concubines. I mean, he's got a lot of stuff. So from the world's perspective, he's doing pretty well. It's working. He's aggressive. He's going after things. It's working. Uh, But he, he runs into a problem here. Uh, his father-in-law has pursued him. He's left a trail of broken relationships everywhere he went. Back home, he wrongs his brother, cheated him out of the birthright. He flees for his life. He, he get, don't get doesn't get along with his father-in-law. Finally now he's fleeing his father-in-law. And he's, he's at the Jordan River. He's actually at a, a branch of the Jordan River, at the Jabok branch of the Jordan River. And here in verse 1, he notices something going on over here along the side of him. It's like a group of people over there, of, of beings over there, and he recognizes that they're heavenly beings. And he acknowledges that in verse 1. And then he's, he he sends spies out to see where his brother is, and they come back and they say, your brother's coming, and he's coming with 400 armed men. And he knows his brother wants to kill him. What are you going to do? If you're, a, if you're a deceiver, what are you going to do if you're a planner if you're a planner and you got your own world by the tail and you ha- you've hoed your own row so far, what are you going to do? He starts thinking, here's what I'm going to do So he, he has a nice prayer yeah, but he, he does he acknowledges some really good things there and there's a bit of humility there that he hasn't had before but he, he thinks, you know what I'm going to send I'm going to split my group in two I'm going to send this group this way and this group over here. I'm going to put the wife I don't like so well and all her children over here. And then at the very end, I'm going to have uh, the wife I do like and, and, and her son here. And uh, actually, I'm going to stay on this side of the brook just in case Esau attacks in the night. I might be able to get out of here. Who, whose life is he worried about the most? Anyone have an idea? It's his own life, isn't it? He's most concerned about his own life. And he's using human reasoning to plan, to scheme. And let's see what happens. If I can find my place here. Uh, Verse 22 is where he had his wives pass over the brook. And I just want to point out one thing. Verse 22 is where you you find that word, Jebok, which is the brook that they the ford. The brook that they passed over, and here's a very significant thing. You know what that means? That word means the Hebrew name for that is a place of surrender, a place of emptying out. That's what it means. And so he sends his 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 wives and his children over. In verse 24, he took them and sent them, or 23, he took them, and sent them over the brook, and sent over that he had. And Jacob. Was left alone. So he's on one side of the brook, everything else he owes is on the other side, and that night one of those heavenly beings came over and wrestled with him all night long until the break of day. It's my understanding that Jacob must have been a very strong, fit man. He wrestled all night and in verse twenty five, and when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow of his thigh in the hollow of Jacob's thigh. Was out of joint, and he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaketh, and he said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob, deceiver, supplanter. He says it with shame. He says it with remorse. And this is a response. It's hard for us to see it, but we have to understand that there's there's a brokenness that's coming into Jacob's life. At this point, his heart is changing, and this is God's response, and he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel, for as a prince hast thou power with God, and with men, and hath prevailed. Something changed in Jacob's heart. And he realized that he was no longer the strong, able-bodied man. He was done. He was finished with managing his own life and running his own show. He was ready just to be the son of God. And he was given a new name. And I just want to point out, uh, Jacob goes on to say he called the place Peniel because he seen the face of God and his life was preserved. And then I want to drop down to verse uh, 3. Verse 3 of chapter 33. And he passed over before them. Okay, now what what does that mean? What happens now, before you have Jacob at the back, you have him at the back and he's cowering and he's got everybody else out in front there. They're supposed to take the arrows and the spears first and give him a chance to get out of here. Now where do you see him? He's walking with a crutch and he's halting on his hip. But where's he at? He's leading his family. He's leading his family in brokenness and humility. And he meets the enemy first. And he bows himself seven times before the enemy. He's he's broken now. He's broken. And I believe, personally, I believe that it was his brokenness that touched his brother's heart. God's protection, God's power was upon a broken man. I see your time is up for the night. A number of years later, we see another man, and he's almost faced in dust. He's pleading with his father, saying, Father, if there's any other way, if there's any other way, but not my will, but yours be done. And we read that he struggled there alone while those that he had nourished and cherished for the three and a half years of his ministry slept. He struggled alone in agony to the point that his sweat was as great drops of blood. The Hebrew writer says that he has gone on before us. He has made a way, he has met the enemy head on. He has bowed himself in humility before the enemy of death, hell, and the grave. And the devil himself, he laid down his life. He made peace through the cross, through surrender, through brokenness. He made peace. And he opened up a way before us. And gave us a safe passage through the veil. That is to say, his flesh that was rent on the cross. He gave us safe passage into the very holy of holies where we can meet before God, where we can worship in spirit, and where we can worship in truth. If our hearts are wholly dedicated to living a life of brokenness and embracing the message of the cross, walking in the footsteps of Jesus, living out his character in us. Young people, I mean to tell you, Upon the word of God, I can promise you that if you take the way of the cross and you take the way of brokenness, I can promise you that God will empower you to do exactly what he intended for Christians to experience in the body of Christ and in marriage and in missions and in our work, in our careers. You will experience power with God. Power over sin. Power in prayer power in your worship. But we will not experience it without coming to that full brokenness that he invites us to come and experience. We're going to sing an invitation song. Just one verse. And I want to just encourage any of you who want to just acknowledge a need for deeper brokenness in your life, just to stand where you're at. As a way of saying... I want to come to a fuller brokenness. I want to surrender my life more completely. I want to embrace the message of the cross. I want it to be more real in my life. And if you want to pray afterwards, we have all night. So let's just sing one verse. If the Lord has spoken to your heart and you just want to make a public confession here of a deeper commitment, do that. If you want to pray, let me know. We will pray together later. Why don't we sing just one verse of Just As I Am. Just as I am. For your courage, brother. God bless you. He will, I promise. He has promised to. Let's all stand together for a word of prayer. Father, as we look at our lives, we, we all have to recognize the need for yet a deeper commitment to walk with Jesus and to yield our lives more fully. I just pray, Father, that you would bless the young people that have come out here tonight, that you would bless them abundantly in the measure in which they walk faithfully with you. Open their eyes, Father, in an ongoing way as they face life and they face the many voices that speak to them, that call them to focus upon themselves and to learn to make their own decisions, and their own determination of truth, and help them to purpose in their hearts that the truth that Jesus is will be the only truth that they will allow to mold and shape their hearts and their wills and their future. Help them, Father, through their surrender, in their surrender, to give all the keys to you. And if there is any area in their life that they have not found power through your Spirit, they would beg of you, Father, to do in them that work of cleansing that we none can do ourselves. We want power with God, and in the day when we stand before him and the books are open, Father, we want the blood of Jesus Christ to be clearly sprinkled upon our life and to be cleansed from our sins. Bless these young people with an ability, Father, to keep their eyes fixed upon Jesus. Our only hope in the dark world in which we live. Help them to keep their eyes off of the darkness. And rather than cursing the darkness, that they might live lives of proclaiming the power that has come to us through Jesus' life and death and resurrection and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Help them to be living testimonies of the power of the gospel and the healing that comes through our intimate connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us now, Father, with courage. Strengthen our faith. May your face shine upon each one here. And may we rejoice in your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.